Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, there's a lot I want to talk about, uh, but I want to sort of frame the, the, the discussion around um, the dream that <clears throat> Jacob has, Yaakov Avinu has, of the ladder starting from uh, the earth and, and stretching toward the heavens. The, 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 the verse, the Pusuk actually says that its, its feet were on the ground and its top was in, was in the heavens. So, so, if you think that this looked like a normal ladder, by the way, meaning to say like an upside-down V-shape, it, it, it wasn't. You know, because when I think of a ladder, I think of something with two sides. This was a ladder that just kind of went straight up, or diagonally up, according to Rashi. There are different opinions of actually <clears throat> how the ladder w- was uh, positioned. And there are all sorts of implications of where the bottom of the ladder was. Was it in Beersheba, which is where uh, Yaakov had just left and where his father Yitzchak still lived? So that being sort of the base of, of where the ladder was. There are all sorts of implications. Like the Shem Shmuel, one of the great commentators, says that that's where Yitzchak was. And now Abraham was not alive at this point anymore. So since Yitzchak was the the patriarch, the living patriarch, so the, the elder statesman, the representation of Torah at that point, that it makes sense that the ladder was positioned on the bottom where Yitzchak lived, because that was sort of Yitzchak and Rivka, for that matter, because that, that was where the headquarters of, of the Jewish people was at that point. Interesting. And the Shem Yishmuel takes another step and says that, that since that was the Headquarters of Torah study, the latter, the Zohar says, the Zohar Chadash says, the latter represents prayer. So if Yitzchak and Rivka were there, and that represents the headquarters of Torah, you see this very interesting um, connection between Torah study and prayer. That Torah study fuels prayer. If you want to launch your prayer and purify and elevate your prayer, you do it through Torah study. And so it makes sense that the ladder then, which according to the Zohar represents prayer, is positioned on the bottom in Beersheba, which was the headquarters of Torah study. So it's linking these two things. In fact, the Gomorrah says that the proper regimen for a person is that you, you learn or you daven, whatever you're doing, and then you do the next step. In other words, go and, go and pray where you learn, or go and learn where you pray. In other words, prayer and Torah study should be connected every morning. And you go from strength to strength, whichever one you begin with. The, the ideal, super ideal, is to actually begin with Torah study. And then in that same spot, you go, you go on to pray. But you can do it the other way around also, to link the two. So you see the two linked in the way the, the ladder was positioned. That's if you understand, like Rashi is understanding, that the ladder was on a diagonal. Now, I pointed out that the ladder was not a V-shape, like, like an upside-down V. That's how our ladders are. Not God's ladder. God doesn't need the support part. <laughs> right? Because God is the support of all the worlds. So, so the way the ladder actually went, in every version, is just a straight line. Just a straight line. Either it was diagonally up or just pretty much up and down. Okay? So, so when you understand that the ladder is actually just a straight line, this is the letter Vav. In Torah, when you make the letter Vav, it's just a straight line. And Vav is a very important letter. We're always studying it. Vav in Hebrew grammar is, means and basically, or or. It's, it's a letter which connects two things. So now, when you think of the ladder as a vav, the idea that this ladder, which represents prayer, right, was positioned on the ground and went all the way up into the heavens, you realize that this ladder is connecting, it's a vav connecting heaven and earth. Right? That's the whole idea. Because this is the great goal of Judaism, of Torah, 
of, of the world, of this project that we call human civilization, humanity, existence. The great goal is to connect heaven and earth. And that's what this dream was. That's what this ladder was. Now, now this, this is so um, resonant on so many different levels. But one of the things that I want to zero in on is, uh, is Yaakov's sort of um, realization when he woke up from this dream. Okay? So this is, this is, this is, this is intense. And um, let me just set up just the, the narrative, just what was going on historically leading up to this dream. Okay? So just very quickly... Uh, Yaakov Avinu has just received the birthright from his father Yitzchak. Esav is very angry about this having happened, Yaakov's twin brother. Esav vows to kill Yaakov. Um, Rivka, Yaakov's mother, says, go to Lovin's house, which is the house that she grew up with. You'll get a wife, you'll, you'll get married, you'll have kids. And... Yaakov agrees to, to leave. So now he's going into exile. Now, he's going to make a stop, a couple of crucial stops along the way to Lovin's house. Okay? This is all um, kind of leading up to, to this event. One thing that happens is Esav's son comes to Yaakov to murder him. And Yaakov has a dialogue with him, and he says, look, you don't want to kill me. And Eliphaz, that's Esau's son, Eliphaz says, and by the way, Eliphaz's descendant is Amalek. Right? So Amalek is the arch enemy of the, of the Jewish people, of humanity. Haman is, was an Amalekite. You know, spiritually seeking, all those who try to eradicate the Jews, the Nazis, all of them are all either by blood or philosophy, Amalekites. So Eliphaz actually is the, I don't know, see the father or the grandfather of Amalek himself. You look in the, in the Torah itself and gave birth to Amalek. Wow. So there, there's the first mention. Okay. So Eliphaz is trying to do um, his father's, his father's uh, request. See, it's, it's, this is all so complicated and, and, and weird because you see Esau's great merit was that he honored his father and he sort of did that partially sincerely but also partially through subterfuge and um, trickery like he would ask him Torah questions that he wasn't really thinking about but which made it seem like he was really involved in what we call lumdis, deep Torah analysis. Like we'd ask him if you have to tithe, give 10% of salt or of straw. Very sort of esoteric halacha questions that the rabbis say he wasn't really struggling with or pondering. But it gave the impression to Yitzchak that he was really involved in Torah study. Okay, so that, that, was, the, that, that was the fraudulent side of it. There was an aspect of him which actually was sincerely serving his father. So now look how this sort of kind of weird, corrupt version of honoring your father gets now passed down to his son. Eliphaz, to do this mitzvah of honoring his father, is now going to murder Yaakov. (laughs) This is going to be the end of the Jewish people. This is going to be complete genocide in one stroke. Because Yaakov marries Leah, he marries Rachel, the two handmaids, and you have the twelve tribes. The entire Jewish people come out of Yaakov. And here Yaakov is about to be murdered by Eliphaz as a way of honoring his father's wishes. Right? So it's just so corrupt and so weird. You know, I can't... Well... You want to hear more weird stuff? Or should we just stay on the subject? <laughs> I like it, but is this from Midrash or is it in the actual Torah? No, no, no. This is, this is in the Midrash. But the Midrash is the actual Torah. <laughs> no, I know, but I just never read it in the Torah. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, all right, let's stay on subject. So, so Eliphaz, Eliphaz, Yaakov says, you don't want to kill me. And Eliphaz says, why? You know, because he has to do what his father told him, right? And he says, because it was, um, it was told to Avraham, who is all of their grandfathers or great-grandfather, uh, Eliphaz's great-great-grandfather, that, um, that my descendants, meaning Yaakov, my descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. And if you kill me, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. Which sounds like a very good argument. And Eliphaz goes, nah, what else you got? <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't seem to bother him. So he said, well, I'll tell you what. You don't want to kill me. Here's what you can do. You can take all of my wealth, rob me blind, leave me with nothing, because the din is, the law is, that someone who's completely impoverished is, is, is likened unto a dead person. So if you just rob me blind, just take everything from me, then it will be as if you killed me. And Eliphaz goes, yeah, yes. He agrees to this. And so, so, so Yaakov lives, but now he has nothing. Okay? Now he goes to the Academy of Shem and Aver, who were the descendants of Noah through Shem, which is the line that the Jewish people come out of. And he studies in that academy for 14 years. This is all on the way to get to Lovin's house. Okay? And he, it says that during this time he didn't sleep in a bed. Which means that, you know, he was basically studying straight for 14 years. And when he just couldn't keep his eyes open anymore, he either put his head down on the table or just kind of lie down on the ground and woke up and went back to it. So for 14 years, this is incredible. This is incredible, right? Imagine what he learned. And they, his teachers had a direct line to the Masorah of Adam Harisha, right? Because it's not so many generations back through Noah to Adam Harishon, to the first person. So imagine the secrets about the world that they knew. Not only that, but on a more emotional level, these are people who, who survived the flood. So, so or they're the direct descendants of those who died, maybe the children who survived the flood. So their grandparents went there. In other words, here, on a here and now level, Yaakov Avinu's life is falling apart. Right? He's been exiled from his home. He's been robbed. He has absolutely nothing. He's all alone. He's a wanted man. If his brother sees him, he's going to murder him. And Esau was like a very famous murderer. You know, so this was, these are not empty threats. So he's in hiding. He's on the run. He has absolutely nothing. And who's he learning from? From the direct descendants of the people who survived the destruction of the entire world. Right? And somehow made it through. I mean, this is just to paint a picture, but this is what was going on. Okay? So, so now Yaakov, at a certain point, realizes that he has to leave. He has to get on with the next chapter of his life. And he goes, and he's, he's traveling and it's Friday night. It's almost going to be Shabbos, right? And he realizes as he's journeying toward Lovin's house, he realizes at a certain point, oh no, I can't believe it. I can't believe I did this. I passed by where my fathers offered, set up an, an altar, offered a sacrifice, and I didn't pray in that spot. Now, what was that spot, by the way? That's the spot where the Akedah happened. Okay? Where, where the binding of, of Isaac happened. And that's the site of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. But none of that was there at that point. And so what Yaakov does was, 
he now turns around and he realizes he's got to go back. And now something amazing happens because the sun is setting. It's almost Shabbos. And there's only certain amounts of, according to the laws of Shabbos, it's called Chum Shabbos. There's only a certain distance that you can travel on Shabbos. In other words, you can't leave the, the, the boundaries of your city by, I, I believe it's more than 2,000 amos. That's a certain measurement. After that, it's like you're, you're over, you've, you're, you've kind of not, you're not in keeping in one of the laws of Shabbos. So, so, so I don't know if that was the factor, if it was the traveling was the factor, but, but, but basically he had to get to wherever he was going to go to, which was the spot where his, where his father and his, his grandfather, Yitzchak and, and Abraham had prayed before Shabbos starts. And Hashem makes a miracle. And it's, a, it's one of my favorite miracles, actually. It's called Kfitzas Haderech, which is where the road shortens. And you're able to travel a very far distance in a very short amount of time. It's this amazing sort of Kabbalistic thing. And, you know, there's stories of Kfitzat Haderech with the Baal Shem Tov and different, different great people throughout history. That, that they've merited to have the, the, the distance miraculously shortened for them. So Yaakov gets to this place now. And this is where he has his dream of the ladder. Okay, so that's the background leading up to the dream of the ladder. Okay? So when Yaakov wakes up, he says something. Now, now just so you know, again, to just give you a sense of Yaakov's frame of mind, if we can possibly speculate or begin to posit it or whatever it is. But we have certain enticing clues and pieces of information that I think that one could, one could maybe extrapolate from there. And one of the clues at this point is before he goes to sleep, he surrounds his head with 12 stones, 12 separate stones. Okay? Now, one of the opinions is that he did that in order to protect himself from wild animals. So you can imagine, again, a person all alone, all alone, now sleeping in the middle of nowhere and concerned that he's going to be eaten by a lion while he's sleeping. This is, this is, this is pretty low. And a little bit upset with himself, seemingly, that he wasn't spiritually sensitive enough to have known when he passed by this holy place that he should have prayed there. I mean, if this is your whole life, that you'd sort of seemingly hold yourself accountable for something like that. So maybe an aspect of recriminations. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze Yaakov Avinu right now, but again, it's, it's important just to... To, 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 to look at these people as human beings or to try to, even though they were exalted, exalted, beyond, 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 beyond. So to some extent, we can try to grasp what was going on in their mind. But at the same time, we have to be very humble and realize that we can never know the depths of what was going on. What age was he? Okay, we know, we know. And I don't have the, the number for you right now. 60s, 70s, but that in that era, of that era of history, that wasn't considered that old. That that wasn't what we because he lives to. I don't know exactly how old. Um, I should know this, but he lives well over 100, 130s, 40s, 50s, 60s, some, I, something, something in there, right? Right. Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a, there, there are famous teachings about his age. I'm sorry that I don't have the fact off the top of my head. But he lives, um, he lives approximately 100 years after this event. So he's got, he's got quite a bit of life left in him. Okay? So, um, so remember, he hasn't even gotten married yet. And he's going to be the father of, you know, many, 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 many people. So, so now... Now he has this dream. So again, he's on the run. His brother wants to murder him. He has absolutely nothing. He's just 
learned for 14 years, and yet somehow didn't know when he encountered the place of his father's that he should have stopped. And he turns back and he goes back. And now he's sleeping and he's surrounding his head because he doesn't want to get eaten by wild animals while he's asleep. Okay? And this is where he dreams of the ladder. And not only that, but God promises him the most awesome promises during this dream. He promises him the most awesome promises. And, um, and when, when Yaakov wakes up, it says, Yaakov awoke from his sleep and he said, this is uh, chapter 28, verse 16. Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Hashem is present in this place, and I did not know. Now, I heard uh, a Breslover Rav, I, I wish I could tell you his name, I, I don't remember his name, but um, explain this passage. And it, it meant so much to me what he said, and I just want to share it with you. So, he said that, you see, there's, I'll give it over the way I remember it. You see, there, there, you've got certain um, kind of touchstones in Torah language that, that mean certain things. So, for instance, nighttime means hard times, okay? Or it could mean despair, right? That's nighttime. Daytime means good times or clarity. That's, that's pretty basic, pretty, pretty easy to understand, okay? So, 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 when Yaakov went to sleep, all the details that I've been telling you up until this point is to tell you that it was really nighttime for Yaakov. It was really nighttime. Now, with this in mind, listen to something really awesome. This is where Yaakov Avinu initiates Mariv. Mariv is our nighttime prayer. So, for all time, in other words, in other words, here you have someone who is one of the greatest people who ever lived. In fact, the Gomorrah says that of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Yaakov was the greatest of the three. Okay? That, and they're not shy about saying that. Oh, there's an argument. Some say, no, they say, it's Yaakov. So they have no, they have no problem saying that whatsoever. Because on the throne of glory, there's certain carvings on the throne of glory. This is all beyond us, whatever this means, actually. You know, don't, don't take it too literally, but nonetheless, this is the, the language, okay? There is a face, a human face, in addition to other images, okay? And a certain animal, an eagle, a, an ox, a lion, I believe. Um, this is in Yechesko, in, in Ezekiel. And there's also the face of a human, and that human is Yaakov. So, because Yaakov's face is on the throne of glory, the Kiseya Kavid, end of story. He's the greatest of the patriarchs. That's it. Because his face wouldn't be there otherwise. That, that, that's my understanding. There might be more to it than that. But that's my understanding. So, so... Yeah, because he's the, the, the culmination of the, of the line. So th that's a very nice way of putting it because everyone knows that Abraham represents chesed, which is kindness. Yitzchak represents gvura, which is really kind of like formation, making something real, like power, you know? This is like turning something into a reality, right? That's, that's Yitzchak. And Yaakov is the harmonizing of both of these energies. And so he, his primary mita is teferet, which is translated as beauty, or emet, which is truth. So, so as the culmination of the avos, it would make sense that his name, his face would be on the kisei covet, not just because it's him alone, but him as the culmination of all three of the avos. That, that's, that's a nice way of understanding it. However, having said that, the Gomorrah says Yaakov was the greatest. <laughs> okay, let's just go back to the, 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 the simple thing that the, that, the, that the sages say. Okay. So, 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 so Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, at this point you have the greatest of the sages, or, or of, the, of the Avos, at arguably the bottom point in his life, 
And this is really nighttime. And what comes out of this? Prayer, marif. Prayer, marif. In other words, in other words, can you imagine the channel that Yaakov opened up for all of us until this day for praying when things get hard? And who was Yaakov? Who did we just say was Yaakov? Yaakov is all of us, because if Yaakov didn't do what he did, if he wasn't able to get to the next step in his life, none of us would be here. So everything boils down to Yaakov. And here he's at his bottom and he's davening Marif. So, amazing, right? Amazing, amazing. You know, what, what we don't realize, and it's not really our fault, but we have to just at least try to be aware of this, is how many channels had been opened up for us for our prayers and for um, connecting with God that our mothers and fathers have done for us for the last several thousand years. And I learned in the name of the Zohar that once a channel opens up, it remains open forever. Once you open up a window to Shemayim, to heaven, it remains open forever. So, there's so many... So much of the groundwork has been done for us. It doesn't mean that our struggles aren't struggles. But we have to know that around us are so many openings and spiritual opportunities that we can take advantage of and that we're the, um, the recipients of and, and that we've got this unbelievable inheritance. You know? So let's just be aware of that. And this is just one moment, the Mariv prayer, when things are tough, that Yaakov was able to daven here. Okay? For all time. That remains open for all time. Okay. So now, now it says he wakes up, and I want to tell you the thought from the, the Breslov Aravna. Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Hashem is present in this place, and I did not know. Okay. So now, when it says that Yaakov awoke, that, that means on a deeper level. And again, we're just talking about all of us right now. We're not necessarily saying what happened with Yaakov. But remember, the Torah is forever. It's for today and it's for all of us. So when it talks about someone waking up, it means that they've gone from a state of constricted consciousness to expanded consciousness. Meaning to say that it's now he woke up, it's now daytime, there's now clarity. All right? So in this state of clarity, Yaakov now says, Surely Hashem is present in this place and I did not know. Now this is for all of us. You see, what happens is, is that when we get depressed, when we, get, when we start to give up, God forbid, because we can never give up, we think Hashem is not there. Somehow Hashem abandoned us. But then when we move to a state of simcha, which is joy, which is expanded consciousness, which is waking up, which is daytime, we look back on the chapter that we just got through and we realize God was there the entire time. You know, if you... I've worked a little bit with addicts, with drug addicts, and I can tell you that all of them should be dead. Every single one of them should be dead. And everyone will tell you a story. They'll tell you themselves why they should be dead. They were either found, passed out, or they went to sleep with a, you know, with a, with a, with a cigarette or something else, and their bed should have caught on fire, or worse, or they OD'd. You know, I mean, just, you know, there's endless variations of these stories. But they, their lives were saved, often miraculously. Why am I bringing that up? Because Yaakov, in his state of clarity, now looks back and says, God was with me the entire time. And in fact, what did God do? He did this miracle of Kfitsa Saderich. 
Not only was he with him during this nighttime, during this period in his time where, by his own account, he thought he was being spiritually insensitive, that he walked by this monumental place of sp- huge, enormous spiritual implications and just walked by without praying there, which was for him like crazy. So much, more, so, much so that he actually turned around when Shabbos was only a tiny bit away and started a journey, right? No, no one who's serious about Shabbos jumps in their car and takes a long trip right as the sun is setting. No one who's serious about Shabbos does that. Many people won't even take a plane on a Friday. What, are you crazy? Take a plane on a Friday? Well, you know what could happen? So it shows you how important it was that he, that he got back to that place. If he's racing the sun... And God, in fact, had made a miracle for him. Was he aware of that miracle? I don't know if he was aware of that miracle. I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But the point is, is that Yaakov Avinu wakes up at this point and he says, God was with me the entire time. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the abode of God. And this is the gate of the heavens. Surely Hashem is present in this place and I did not know. So what happens is when we get to this place of clarity and God willing, anyone who needs to be in this place of expanded consciousness should be able to to get to this place. And we'll talk about how to get there in a moment. But looking back, he realizes God was there the entire time. See, listen guys, the bottom line is God is necessarily with you, because if you are here, by definition God is here. Because if God wasn't here, you wouldn't be here. Because the world can't run without God. God is keeping the world going every single moment. God is keeping each one of us going every single moment. That means if you're here, that's proof that God is here. You want to hear it? I'll say it even more strongly. If you ask yourself the question, Where is God? Why has God abandoned me? That's proof that God is right here and God hasn't abandoned you. Because you wouldn't, your brain wouldn't be working to ask the question, where is God? Unless God was there keeping you alive and keeping the world going. So your very existence is proof of the presence and the closeness of God. So, you know, you can be worried about a lot of things if you want to in your life. But you don't have to be worried whether God is there and whether he's with you. That's always going to be true, by definition. By definition. So, so now, I heard um, my Rebbe, Reb Shlomo, said that one of the hardest things in the world is for a person to have their feet on, their gra- on the ground and their head in the clouds, right? Normally speaking, people are either, their head is in the clouds and their feet are not on the ground. Meaning to say, they're very creative or artistic or spacey or whatever it is, but, and that's all well and good, but they're not thinking about the rent and the phone bill and calling people back and things like this, right? Okay. I tend to be a little bit more in that category, unfortunately. (laughs) Then you've got... The other side, people whose feet are on the ground, but they can't, you know, you want to talk to them about philosophy or art or God or something like that. And it's like, all they want to know is, you know, when you're going to have your homework assignment. in. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, I lent you 50 bucks. It was due a month ago. Let's, Let's talk about that first. okay? so it's like, so, you know. But to have both, to have both at the same time, to have your head up in the clouds while your feet are on the ground, this is an enormous attainment to be able to be in this place. So this is also the ladder, because the ladder had, it says, its feet on the ground and its top was in the heavens. Okay? So the ladder, we said in the name of the Zohar Chadash, that that represents prayer. So I would say on the simplest level, if you want to be grounded and with your head in the clouds, you've got to pray a lot. <laughs> you've got to pray for it, because otherwise it's not going to happen. 
All right, that's number one. Now I want to I want to segue into how how on some levels we can have this balance because that's a very nice word for this balance. You know, if we just have to boil it down. Or here's another nice word: integration. That's another nice word. Okay. So here's another nice two words, mental health. Okay, here's another nice two words, healthy spirituality. Okay, these are all nice things because spirituality is not an excuse for someone to be an escapist. Sometimes people use religion to escape reality. You can't escape reality. God is reality. So since God is reality, and since you can't escape reality, then what do you have to do? What my father would call being a mensch. You have to be a mensch. You know, you can't say, I'm, I'm too religious to, you know, I'm too religious to be nice to you. <laughs> you know, what? What are you talking about? You're escaping the, the, the boundaries of being a decent human being because through religion? What are you talking about? This is like, this is absurdity. This is not truth. So, so, in other words, the, the Torah itself demands of a person, demands of a person, this level of integration and, and, and healthy spirituality. It demands this of a person. And I'll tell you something else. This is a connection I'm making, but it's, it's, an, it's a known gematria, but I'm going to apply it to this, which is the word sulam, which means ladder, okay, is the same gematria as Sinai. Sinai is, of course, Mount Sinai, where the Torah was given. So, in other words, the Mount Sinai, the Torah itself, Sinai is a sulam, is a ladder. Torah is meant to bridge heaven and earth and to create healthy integration. So if your if your Sinai, if your Torah isn't making you more integrated, then there's something wrong. Something wrong is going on. And you have to look into that. Okay. So, so the first thing that I want to discuss on this more practical level is expectations. And appreciation. And and uh, and to, let me just tell you something that that I heard on the news this week. So um, I don't know how much you know about sports, but there are certain uh, sports records which are considered classic classic milestones that have been on the record books for decades and they're just, you know, people think they'll never be broken. Okay? One of these records is Will Chamberlain's 100-point game that he had in the NBA. Okay? So this is, to this day, no one's ever broken that and that was, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago? I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a long time ago. But Will Chamberlain himself in an NBA game, scored 100 points. All right? And they won, by the way. <laughs> so, okay, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. Okay. This past week, in college basketball, okay, it's different. It's not the NBA. It's not the NBA. It's college basketball. But nonetheless, in college basketball, this past week, someone by himself, just an individual, scored 138 points. So this is phenomenal. This is phenomenal. I mean, I heard an interview with him, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. But the first question was, do your arms hurt? I mean, because if you think about it, like, you know, I don't know how many of you work out. uh, But, you know, if you do a certain amount of aerobics, at a certain point, your arms actually hurt. Like, what would it take just to go through, just to stand under the rim? And to score, you know, unguarded, 138 points. 
Like, I would imagine that that would make my arms exhausted. And he's doing it in a competitive environment. Okay? So, so why am I telling you about this guy? Because he said something that when I heard it, it's like all these bells went off in my head. It's like, it was like I had this, like, moment, you know? And they asked him, very straightforward question. If you were interviewing him, you'd ask him the same question. How do you feel? How does it feel? And the answer that he said was, you know, right now it feels like a dream. It hasn't really sunk in. And the reason why all the bells went off in my head is because I realized I've heard so many people give that exact same answer at momentous moments in their life. And then I realized in my own life to the extent, you know, that I've accomplished whatever, at those moments, I've asked myself, well, how does that feel? And it's like, I just know that it's like it's not real at the moment. It's like it hasn't sunk in, or like a dream, however you want to phrase it. And I realized, wow, this is like, this is almost like a syndrome. Like, you could almost, like, if you filed all these cases... You could actually posit a psychological condition. And, you know, you can just, whatever you want to call it, is that, but here's what it says to me, because I'm going to be very practical in a moment, because I think this relates to you and me on a, on a daily basis, which is that from the outside, Let's say I was really into basketball. Let's say I aspired to be a basketball player or something like this. Or I was just such a fan and wanted to be a player. I want to be whatever it is. The normal reaction would be 138 points. Oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I had done that. And yet, here's the testimony from the person who actually did it. It hasn't sunk in. It's like a dream. So... You want to attain that. And by the way, just to be very clear, I'm not making a speech against ambition. Be thoroughly ambitious. Set huge goals for yourself and try to attain them. But at the same time, be aware that you say, I would like to do that. On some level, the person who did it didn't even do it. Because he himself hasn't grasped what he's done. And so there's so many versions of this because people look at other people and they say, if only I had that, I'd be happy. But the people who have that don't even have that often because they themselves, it's not in their head what it is that they have. Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's, that's a great example. And, um, and you know, I'll tell you, there's, a, there, there's something that I, I kind of thought of this example one time, and I think about it often, which is that, you know, I, I don't buy lottery tickets that, that often, but I, I do every once in a while. And, um, by the way, I, I learned from, uh, from a, a Rav that if you buy a lottery ticket, only buy one. Because if you buy two, that's a sign of lack of faith. Because all God needs is one. So if you're doing buying more than one, somehow this is a contradiction to belief in God, who's the only one who's going to get you to win that lottery anyway. So you might as well be right with God if you're going to be playing the lottery. So, so that, that I thought was a very nice... You talk about integration. Nice bit of integration there. So... So imagine, so, but when I buy the lottery tickets, I, I almost never check them. <laughs> I don't know why exactly. I guess I'm, I just think that it's just, it's 
so remote that why even bother and or whatever it is. So so imagine imagine and I think other people are like this also. If I'm like this, I'm sure there are other people out there like this. So imagine someone has in their drawer a lottery ticket that's actually worth fifty million dollars. But they don't know it because it's in their drawer. So the question is, do they have $50 million or don't they have $50 million? Now, by the way, I'm being very careful not to use the word rich because one of the things that I I, I think is important is that we reclaim the definition of this word in a Torah sense. Because rich, it says from our sages, means someone who's happy with their lot. Semech bechelko. So you can be rich with $2 in the bank and you can be poor with a billion dollars in the bank. Okay? So it's important that we reclaim the definition of rich, especially as society becomes increasingly consumeristic. Um, so, so the question is, does this person have $50 million or, doesn't they have 50, or don't they have $50 million? So I think the truth is that you can argue it both ways. You can say, objectively speaking, he has $50 million. He just doesn't know it. Right? So, okay, I, I hear that. I hear that. He does have the ticket. And if he redeems the ticket, he'll get the money. So I, I, I hear that he, he actually does have the money. But psychologically, right, if the person is, say, broke, and they continue to live this psychology of being broke, and they don't have what they have, then they don't have the $50 million. So in other words, in order to have what you have, it's not enough that it just exists in your house or it exists in your wallet. It's got to exist in your mind. You've got to be aware of it and you have to understand it. It's got to exist in your heart. If you have people who love you and there are people who genuinely love you, you have your mother, your father, sister, brother, whatever it is, wife, husband, kids, they love you, friends, they love you, but you don't feel their love, then, you you know, what, I'm not saying what good is it, it's great to have that there, but you have what you have. You know, Rav Noach, Zechot Tzadok Lebrucha, would often say to his students, I heard from one of his students, he would tell his students, know what you know. You know what that means? Know what you know. That means that you know, there's some people who you start to tell them something, they go, I know that. But, <laughs> but if, you, if, you, if you stopped in the middle and said, okay, tell me what's the rest of the thought, they wouldn't be able to tell you. They don't mean they know that. What they mean is, I heard that once. That doesn't mean you know it. To know it means that you heard it you integrated it, and you'll be able to say it over on your own, that it's actually a part of you. Bless you. So you've got to know what you know. It's not enough just to have it around you. Yeah, I was in a classroom where this professor spoke about X. So yeah, I know, because I took X in college. But can you say it over? No, then you don't know it. You heard it. You heard it. You don't know it. The 50 million is in a drawer, but... It's not yours. So, so let's get back to this idea of the 138 points. A lot of people, they look at other people and they think, that person has X, but the person himself doesn't even have it. Because it hasn't sunk in. They haven't integrated it. They don't even have it. So, so a lot of us set certain goals for ourselves. And we ought to. And it's right and it's proper to do it. And again, it is good to be ambitious. However, we shouldn't make our happiness or hold our happiness hostage to achieving these things. Because either we won't achieve them, and then we'll never be happy, or we'll achieve them, and there's a good chance we won't even appreciate what that achievement is. And so, what have we done? We've, 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 we've set ourselves up for suckers. 
You know, Rabbi Nachman talks about a, a person who's, who, who's running after this wrapped box, this wrapped present, and he's running after it and going through all sorts of, you know, trauma just to get to the thing, crowds, pushing through crowds, just, he finally gets it and he opens it up and it's empty. There's nothing in it. This is another very crucial thing, which is defining our terms. Because every single person, if you walk up to a thousand people and say, do you want to be a success? You'll get a thousand yeses. Then if you say to them, oh, by the way, what does it mean to be a success? You'll probably get a thousand scratches on the head. <laughs> like, uh, well, I'll know it when I get it. Really? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that you will know it when you get it. Unless you know what it is that you're essentially sacrificing your life for. What is it exactly? What is success? Every single person has to define success. You know? Because if it's this vague thing, then how are you going to be happy when you attain quote-unquote success if it's this vague thing that you don't even know the definition of? I once heard someone say sort of ironically, what's the definition of enough? A little more than I have. <laughs> right? So, a person by design will never have enough. If you don't know the definition of success, believe me, you will never experience or attain success. Maybe you'll have little moments. Okay, so now... Let's go to the opposite extreme. The opposite extreme of scoring 138 points in a single game. By the way, you know, just as a side note, someone on the losing team scored 72 points. You know, and you can make a whole talk out of that. Just the fact that no one's talking about him except in this context. <laughs> right? I mean, do who scores 72 points in a game? I mean, that's, you know, that would be something that you'd always remember. But somehow it was when he scored 138 points. So, you know, you got to, life is strange, right? So, so let's go to the other end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is um, something that I've experienced and maybe you've experienced it too you've got an appointment in five minutes. It's going to take you 15 minutes to get there. And you can't be late. And it's like, you've got so much anxiety. And you're rushing, and you, you're, you're just hoping you're going to get a space, and the lights will go your way, and there won't be traffic. And somehow you get there. Maybe you're a tiny bit late, and then you find out the person's running late. And you go, ah, oh, thank God, thank God. You experience this enormous salvation, right? Now, isn't it interesting? Think about, if you know what I'm talking about, how visceral and how real that sense, God was with me and he blessed me and he helped me, when you just aren't late for an appointment versus... I just scored 138 points in a ballgame. How do you feel? I don't, it's like a dream. It hasn't sunk in. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that this enormous accomplishment that you would think would be like, oh, you can't even stop talking about how meaningful it is. You know? Well, I'll tell you, this is the culmination of everything that I put in. You know, I first, let me tell you about the first day I, I picked up a basketball. I can still smell the leather and the, and I can feel the little dots on my fingertips of what it was to hold a ball. And then my first coach, I'll tell you exactly what scoring 138 points means to me. That's not what he said. How did you feel when you, when you were, when you were late for the appointment? I felt like there's a God in the world. There's a God in the world and he knows me. And he was making all the lights work out. And he made all the lights not work out for the other person. Look at the contrast. Look at the contrast. So, one of the things that I learned from this 
is look how good God is. Look how good God is. That God didn't say, you know something, I'm going to set up a world. And you know, I'm going to make this magnificent commodity called happiness. And I'm going to give it out to almost no one. (laughs) If you can score 138 points in a single game, then you can wait online and receive this precious gift of happiness. All the rest of you, hide under a rock. Right? But God didn't do that. God said, I'm going to make happiness enormously available. Enormously available. You don't even have to score 138 points. In fact, if you score 138 points, it's up to you whether you're going to do it. But I'm going to create a world where, you know something? If I, if I don't lock myself out of the house every day, that is a separate miracle. You know? Or lock my keys in the car. You, you can't even imagine how many of your prayers are being answered. You just didn't pray them. When you get into a car, your greatest prayer is that the car is going to start. And then the car starts. That was an answered prayer, but you didn't pray it. When you go to a store, oh please, I need a product. First of all, it's open. It could be closed. You were praying that it should be open. And it was open. Your prayer was answered. Only you didn't pray it. Our prayers are constantly being answered. It's just that we're not praying the prayers. Opportunities for happiness are constantly being given. Constantly being given. Constantly. You know... One of my favorite songwriters, uh, someone named Warren Zevon, who uh, passed away a, a few years ago, and he had a, a well-documented illness, and he made a last album, and he was sort of dying as he was making this album, and so they made it a documentary on it and showed him recording the songs, and he's singing about his own death, and it's really heartbreaking songs and beautiful music and really special, you know? Anyway, here was a guy who was like a poet, a philosopher, and what did he call his last album, right? Enjoy Every Sandwich. It's an amazing, amazing bit of understatement, but that's filled with so much, which is what I'm trying to communicate, which is the, the accessibility and the ripeness, the multiplicity of moments of opportunity and joy and appreciation. You see, and to connect it back to the latter, if you want to bring heaven down to earth, which is this construct of the latter, which is linking the earth to heaven, if you want to bring heaven down to earth, you have to see God in the mundane and in the everyday. That's, that is what underlies all of halacha. If you look into halacha and you say, it's so intricate, it's so all-encompassing. Yes, that's the point. That's the point. That's the point of halacha. For us to see in every single thing, the more mundane the better. That God's hand is here. It's not some device meant to control you or to restrict you. There's certain parameters that we have to live by. That's true. But the point is to keep us in this place of mindfulness and awareness. That's, that's what it is. That's the point. And if it's not being taught to you that way, then you have to find another teacher. Or you have to talk to your teacher. Right? And maybe enlighten your teacher. <clears throat> so, so this is this is it, and so one of the great tools of bringing heaven down to earth is gratitude, and appreciation, and happiness, because this happiness yields expanded consciousness, and then when you get to this place of expanded consciousness, as we said with Yaakov Avinu, you're able to look back when it was nighttime. Now that you wake up with joy and clarity and expansiveness, you're able to look back 
and say, God actually was with me the entire time. I just didn't know it. Because I was asleep. Okay. Now I want to give you one more tool, and then we'll wrap it up. And this tool is a very well-known tool. And it's something that really, I think, all systems of spirituality use, including Judaism, including Judaism. In fact, I'll suggest that the source of it is is in Judaism. And that's breathing. And it's really important to breathe. And and there's there's what what what, what happens is is that Breathing is our connection to life, actually. Okay? You know, something, I remember learning this as a kid, and it just amazed me, which is that if a person stops breathing, let's say, and goes unconscious, one of the first things that happens is they start breathing again. (laughs) Because it's controlled by a system which is kind of, I don't I don't know the scientific terms, but it's I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I can pronounce that. <laughs> so so in other words, breathing is so essential that it's almost not even in our control. However, in our conscious state we do we do control. And we when we get very stressed out, our breathing becomes very shallow. Or we stop breathing more or less altogether. And then we take very occasional breaths because the other system kicks in or, or, or whatever it is. But, you know, we'll keep on breathing, but they won't be these full-on sort of life-giving breaths. And I want to show you just psychologically what happens. And let me just point to the verse in the Torah. Um, and then we'll just get back to the tool. It's in chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. It's talking about the creation of human beings. It says that a mist... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Um, chapter 1, verse 7, yeah. And Hashem God formed the man of dust from the ground. This was Adam Harishon, the first person. Now listen. And he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. So he blew into his nostrils the soul of life. In other words, the very beginning of life is connected to breathing here. So, so what happens is, when a person, I'm going to suggest a chain of events that we go through um, uh, that we're probably not aware of, but I'm going to try to explicate them. When we stop breathing because we're so stressed out and so tense, because we stop breathing, that sends a message to us. We send a message to ourselves that our life is ending and that the world is falling apart. Our life is ending and the world is falling apart because that breath which we've stopped breathing, because we've become so constricted and so stressed and so tense, actually is separating us from the source of life. And so we feel now psychologically and emotionally that, that we're ending and that the world is ending and that these problems are actually coming to kill me and destroy the whole world. And then if you breathe, oh, then you breathe through that moment and then all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a second, it's not as bad as I thought because the world isn't falling apart. I'm not dying. So these are very uh, primordial thoughts. I'm not saying that this is going on in the conscious mind. But this is kind of what's being communicated to us on a, on, a, on a deep level. And if we're able to breathe through it, then we see, okay, I'm still alive. Life is going on. The world is still here. As bad as I thought it was, it's not as bad as I thought it was, which means it's already better. It's already better than I thought. You know something? I've been trying to do this in my own life, to just be more aware of my breathing. And it got to a point that I noticed, because I didn't do this intentionally, so I think something good is happening with me, 
which is that when I hear the word stress, if I even hear the word stress, if I hear someone else say it or if I say it, I notice that I take a deep breath. So I, I guess on some level condition myself that already I'm trying to, you know, it's like the medics either rushing to the scene before things get stressful because if you hear the word stress in conversation, it's probably about to get more stressful, <laughs> the environment. <laughs> so if you can already begin the deep breathing at that point, right, then, or just to keep breathing. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not going into yogi mode, that you have to sit on the floor and now dim the lights. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about just breathing, just being aware that you don't shut down your breathing. Because for some reason, it's a very natural thing for people just to shut down their breathing when things get stressful. And that's when you need your breathing the most. And like I say from this Pusik, And God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life. And man became a living being. Look how crucial breathing is. Right? So again, we started off, just to review, and we'll just end now, but we we started off by talking about Yaakov Avinu and this ladder leading up to heaven and earth and how this is the goal of Torah, the goal of existence, this whole project called the world is to connect heaven and earth. Right? And each one of us is a ladder. And ladder is prayer. If you want to be able to attain that state of integration, of mental health, of spiritual balance, you have to be like a ladder. Remember the Zohar says that the latter means prayer, so you have to pray to get to that place. Also to remember that when Yaakov had this dream, that it was really nighttime in his life. It was really a, the, maybe the darkest time in his life. And that's when he initiated the prayer of Marv. So this gate, to, that, that if things ever get bad, that the gate is open for prayer, and it was opened by the ultimate person at his bottom place, that should give us a lot of strength to just pray, to know that, that that gate is still open and remains open for all time. And to also remember not to hold our happiness hostage on certain goals. God willing, we'll all achieve them. But just be aware that oftentimes people achieve magnificent things and they themselves don't even feel what, what it's like. And to realize, enjoy every sandwich. Right? To realize that our prayers are constantly being answered. We're just not praying them. And to appreciate that God made this level of appreciation available not just to people who, who accomplish ridiculous, chart-breaking things, but to all of us every single day. And to also to remember to breathe. That we have to connect ourselves to the source of life at all times. And that as bad as things are, they're better than you think. And that everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. okay.